Welcome to Law Technology Now. I'm Ralph Baxter, and I'll be your host for this episode. And going forward, I'll be a regular co-host on this show with Dan Linna. I am delighted to participate in this show and to be part of the Legal Talk Network. I'm inspired by the work of the hosts who have come before us. Bob Ambrogi, of course, a pioneer in legal podcasting and a good friend and someone who's been very helpful to me as I have thought about this show, and Monica Bay, the original host of Law Technology Now, someone who is a great friend to everyone in the world of law and who has been a star in all legal media for many years. And I'm delighted to be part of this with Dan Linna, one of the clearest voices about where law is today and where it is headed. Let me share with you some thoughts that motivate me as I take over this responsibility on this podcast. I think law is more important than it ever has been. Law is, is in everyone's life. It's in every business's business. There's more law. There's more jurisdictions. Data makes it exponentially harder to comply with. So law is vital in our lives going forward. We are blessed to have thousands of outstanding lawyers, well-educated, prepared, dedicated, principled, trying to serve the needs of their clients, but we can do better. Law has not kept pace with uh, advances in technology and advances in process design in the way that other professions have, nor in the way that our clients have, the way industry has. We can do this. We could deliver legal service better, We could do it faster, we can do it more transparently, and we can do it cheaper. Cheaper both in the sense of how we incur cost as we deliver legal service and cheaper in the sense of what we charge our clients, what the fee levels are. So we can do it better. Now, for all of us to do it better, we, number one, have to work together, and number two, we need really to understand how did we get to where we are today and then understand What are the things we can do, the steps, the technologies, the process design improvements that we can make to deliver legal service better? And those two fundamental ideas are the motivational objectives of Law Technology Now for me, to talk about how law works today and to talk about how we can make it work better for everyone. We hope to reach as broad an audience as we can. We want lawyers to listen, but we'd like everybody else who cares about law to listen too. We're going to try in this program to translate issues that can be very complicated, issues of law, issues of technology, into a conversation that is understandable for everybody. Uh, We're going to bring the personalities onto this show who are the people who educate the lawyers, the people who regulate the lawyers, the people who are the legal service professionals, and the people who are the clients. We think it's important for everyone to understand how each of the human beings uh, sees what we are talking about. We'll try to keep it interesting, and we might even succeed at keeping it entertaining. We shall see as we go along. So for today's first episode, we have an ideal guest. We have Professor Bill Henderson. Uh, We recorded this episode uh, in August when Bill was at the uh, annual meeting of the American Bar Association. Bill is one of the most popular figures in law today. He travels all over 
the country, uh, talking to audiences about where things are and how they can be better. And in particular, as you will hear, he's got great new ideas about how to educate uh, lawyers and others in legal service so that they have all of the skills they need to make the most of the 21st century as they serve their clients. So I hope you enjoy my first episode on Law Technology Now. Welcome to another edition of Law Technology Now. I'm Ralph Baxter, and I'm the host for today's show. For those of you accustomed to uh, hearing Dan, Monica, and Sean, I have recently joined the faculty here of Law Technology Now, and uh, we're now one larger family, and we'll be co-hosting this program from here on. Before we get to our show today, I want to thank our sponsor, Headnote helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. Our guest today is Bill Henderson. We're doing this, uh, this podcast at the ABA Annual Convention in San Francisco, so if you hear a little noise in the background, it's because we're doing it uh, in a hall here in the middle of the ABA Convention. So, Bill, it's really a pleasure to have you on this episode of Law Technology Now, and, and I mean that sincerely. You, you have come to occupy a distinct position in the uh, ecosystem of the profession of law in the United States. You're a professor, and of course you write, you do research, and, and that part is what professors are supposed to do, but you've done so much more with your position as a law professor. Uh, importantly, you were the founder uh, of Legal Evolution, which is an online publication that focuses on cha the changing legal industry, and, and people can go to that site and get really thoughtful, in-depth uh, writings about what's really happening in the profession and, and learn ideas about what they might do to do better in the setting in which they find themselves. You were the founder of Law, Lawyer Metrics, which everyone has come to know uh, as a business that really helps you understand the metrics that, that uh, undergird uh, the practice of law. And you're now the founder of the Institute for the Future of Law Practice, which we call IFLIP, which we're going to talk about in the main here in this podcast. You're as active as a speaker as, as anybody I know. In fact, every place I go, including uh, here at the American Bar Association meeting, uh, you appear at meeting after meeting. You've become really one of the true visionaries and thought leaders in law, and that's why the California Bar selected you to write its uh, groundbreaking legal landscape report, which is then the foundation for the work they're doing now to reconsider uh, the, the bar rules here in California. But as important as anything, People like you, Bill. They trust you. And I think that's a lot of what enables you to occupy the position that you do. So I'm, I'm just delighted to have you on this episode. So let's get going and talk about how you got to where you are. First of all, Ralph, it's a real pleasure to be, uh, uh, to be on this podcast and spend time with you. Uh, uh, we've had many conversations over the years here, so this will be the first one that's taped uh, 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 live here. But I always enjoy the conversations, and this will be no exception. I uh, went to law school when I was 35 years old. I did have another uh, career. If you go back to the 1980s and Ronald Reagan's in the uh, uh, White House and there was the Reagan Revolutionary, Reagan Revolution, and I was, I was uh, at the London School of Economics 
doing my junior abroad, and I saw kind of an attitude of careerism set in with a lot of my peers and said, you know what, I don't really want to be a Reagan revolutionary, and what, 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 what corporation would ever hire somebody that's a, that's a college dropout? So I actually dropped out after my third year of law school, or third year of uh, undergrad after my junior year at the London School of Economics, and, and uh, much to the chagrin of my, uh, my mother, and I uh, went back to Cleveland, Ohio, and um, uh, uh, ran a small business, a small landscaping business, eventually got a job as a firefighter paramedic for in the suburbs of, uh, of Cleveland, and I thought that that was a, a life. I think I, I was influenced by Eric Hoffer, uh, the, uh, the, the, the blue-collar philosopher that, uh, that uh, wrote a series of books in the 50s and 60s that all I really needed was a library card, and I would be, I would be happy uh, working. And, uh, uh, and so I was uh, just having a pretty good life, got married, and uh, uh, started a family. I was a firefighter paramedic uh, in the suburbs of Cleveland, and I uh, got involved in the union activities. And uh, it was the negotiating contracts and doing grievances on behalf of the IAFF that uh, it really was the first time I had been intellectually engaged in probably a decade. And uh, I was reading the annotations for uh, on, the, on, on the Ohio's collective bargaining law, uh, Ohio Revised Code 4117, which, is, <laughs> which was launched my legal career. I didn't realize that I was reading case annotations. And so uh, uh, as I sometimes kid, it was those bastard management attorneys uh, that I negotiated against that inspired me to go to law school. The folks at Duvin, Con and Hutton, now part of Littler, who uh, inspired me to go to law school. So I, I went, had to go back to finish my undergraduate degree. So I re-enrolled at Case Western Reserve and uh, did my senior year there, married, uh, had a kid and uh, finished my senior year while I was still at the fire department. And I had a, I had a mentor there. His name's Andy Morris. He's now the dean of the, of the Texas A&M School of Innovation. Uh, used to be the dean of, uh, of Texas A&M Law School and he's a revered law professor. But his junior career, he was on the faculty at Case Western Reserve in the business school and the law school. And I finished my, uh, take, took law and economics as a, as a senior at Case Western Reserve as a 33-year-old. And uh, we ended up, and he said, you should go to law school. I said, I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to go to Cleveland Marshall Knight Law School, like a bunch of other cops and firefighters. And he goes, no, you, you might be able to do something different. And he, and, he, and he coaxed me into becoming a law professor. He said, if you go to the University of Chicago, you should go there. And uh, the world has changed a lot in the 1990s. And, uh, and, I, and I got in, and, uh, and I had a supportive spouse. And that's pretty much how it happened. So it's not, ex- it's not a typical journey into law, but increasingly I think we're finding that people do things before law school, and I think your story uh, is an encouraging one for people that it, you don't have to go the traditional route through venture capital or, or a technology company before law school. You can do something, something different. If we get a chance, we'll talk about what some of your research shows about people who have blue-collar jobs before uh, law school. So how did it happen well, first of all, why did you? Was it your goal to begin with to be a professor after you uh, finished law school? I, I, this is an honest to God statement that I made to my wife. She can verify that. I said, I want a job where they pay me a decent amount of money, uh, I can do what I want, and I give periodic updates. That is the job description of a law professor. Uh, so uh, Andy talked about uh, the freedom you got to pursue intellectual interest and have an impact on the world here. And I thought, you know, lawyers have long had a outsized influence on society. And I thought, well, I'm going to become a lawyer because uh, I want to influence the direction of the world. So how did it happen, and I think you're, you're already giving us part of the answer, how did it happen that you became so public in what you do? 
I don't think it's common for law professors to have such a reach beyond the law school or the university where they are as you have have developed. How did that happen? Look, step one is luck. Okay, so uh, let's start with uh, let's start with step one, luck. I can remember being a little bit older and watching the on-campus interview process take place at University of Chicago, where my classmates were the smartest people I've ever been around here, uh, suspending critical faculties as they began to plot their careers here, really uh, adopting careers where they were trying to uh, really kind of have a sense of belonging and impress other people as opposed to really what mattered to them. And I thought this is all comes about here because people are making career decisions in an information vacuum where they're getting all information from the OCI process and they're not really thinking about legal careers in a systematic way. So if I become a law professor, I'm going to have a course on law as a business. And so uh, when I got on the faculty of Indiana, they let me create that course. And I started, uh, I created the course and I started pulling data from American Lawyer just to use in my class and began to realize that there were some interesting patterns in there. And so I thought, well, I'll publish a couple of papers on it. And I built a, a substantial tenure file based upon that research that came out of that uh, class. But then the world changed on me. If you remember 2007, 2008, first the market went got meteoric, and uh, we didn't have enough uh, uh, elite law school graduates to fill the, the the massive demand for the rise of big law. And so that was that, that that I was the right person at the right time because I had studied this, and I was able to commentate on it, and there was a lot of public interest on it. And then the market crashed. And so it was the rise and fall put a big spotlight on my academic research. And, you know, and, and uh, I started blogging about it, Empirical Legal Studies blog. To boil it down, Ralph, it all turns on luck. <laughs> uh, luck plus opportunity. So what were the breakthroughs that got you on these public podiums? I mean, you are as, as frequent a speaker yeah. at, at meetings of law firms and bar associations as really anybody in the country. If I could give myself credit for one thing, uh, it was realizing uh, the power of a demonstrable. And, uh, and so I can remember at this meeting, in, uh, it was in 2007, it was literally at the ABA annual meeting where they, a lot of things going, like the Council of Legal Education. I went to the Council of Legal Education meeting, and I was a kind of a backbencher there, just observing what's going on uh, here. But I cared about legal education, so I showed up for it. And Jim Leipold, who's the, who's the executive director for NALP, and I think one of the good guys in the legal industry, far-sighted person who, who sees the big picture and, and also can do the little stuff uh, in, a, in, in a meticulous way here, came in with a what was called the bimodal distribution, where, where, where labor markets shouldn't clear based upon a, uh, a, they should clear in a normally distributed fashion, a bell curve. But when you when you have a group of law school graduates that are making $50,000 a year, and nobody making between 50 and 160, and then another large group making 160, it's called a bimodal distribution. And I knew when I looked at that, is that this market market is, uh, is dysfunctional. And, uh, and so Jim handed out, he said, it's hot off the press. And I went back in and I can remember where I was. I was, I was in a hotel room writing a blog post, realizing that I had something that was a huge uh, blockbuster story. And that was the most widely read uh, blog post I've probably ever written. And then I ended up writing a paper on it that became my most, it's an unpublished paper. It's a working paper on SSRN here. And it's the one that's gotten me the most downloads that literally launched my career. It was just, it was Jim Leipold handing me a sheet of paper and me knowing what it said. Right. And, and is, if those of you who've seen Bill speak, Bill is one of the best in the country at presenting graphics to support the talk that he is giving. The other thing you find with Bill when you get a chance to hear him is that he always is honest about every subject, no matter what the answer is, and, and informed. Um, well, let's turn now to um, your most recent 
uh, initiative, the Institute for the Future of Law Practice. Uh, this is still at a relatively early stage. We'll talk about it. It's, it's, not, it's not a startup anymore. You, you have some years under your belt. But let's, uh, let's talk about what it is and what its objectives are. So let, let's, let's start with that. What is IFLIP? Uh, Institute for the Future of Law Practice, and you got it right, we call it IFLIP, is a, uh, is a, a nonprofit intermediate organization that creates what I would call multidisciplinary training uh, modules for the future of the profession, uh, paired up with paid internships. If you want an economic engine, you, it has to lead to jobs. And so one thing that gets everybody's attention in the legal education world is you're placing people in jobs. The curricula is what uh, we hear from the legal ecosystem is valuable to do more with less. Uh, but if, we pair, if you pair it up with paid internships, it gets the law school's attention. So it's that one-two punch that we put together. And we've had, uh, we're, we're in the process, early stages of scaling, but it, it traces back to two 2014. Maybe we should talk for a second about about the early stages of that. Right. Let, let's talk about what motivated you to organize this effort. What was missing or what were you trying to achieve by organizing iFlip? I was witness to a conversation in 2012 uh, by a, a guy, Phil Weiser, who at the time was the dean of, uh, of Colorado Law School or UC uh, Colorado Boulder. And, uh, and he is now he's the attorney general of Colorado. And at the time, one of he was convening this series of, uh, of roundtable meetings on the future of legal education. And there was a guy named Bill Moose there that was the it was high up in, in VMware, a big technology, a global technology company. And he told Phil, he said, what I'm doing in my legal department, which is multinational, very sophisticated, has, is so little connected to what's going on in legal education. There should be a program that connects the uh, these two things up here. And Phil said, well, why don't you become a professor of practice and stand it up here? And uh, I helped Phil and Bill get some grant funding. And we had this Techler Accelerator that was running for a few years that uh, was a three-week boot camp that basically focused on in-house practice, got a lot of technology companies interested in tech, or I mean, uh, Cisco, Adobe, NetApp, basically the, the early people of Clock were very interested in this program. And so uh, we ran, ran it for a few years, but we, we ran into some difficulties scaling it. Uh, a lot of success with employers, a lot of success with students. We weren't getting academic for it at the time here. Uh, but if you'll indulge me, is it okay to tell a Steve Harmon story from Cisco? Sure. Because that's, that's, the, that's the linchpin. So, uh, so at the Clock, the Corporate Legal Operations Consortium meeting in 2017, I was there. I just... Uh, finished uh, uh, my tour of duty with Lawyer Metrics. So we had sold the company. I had done a one-year tour of duty and, and left, and I was getting my white space back. And Steve Harmon says to me in the hallways of clock, 2017, when are you going to get your act together and scale the Tech Lawyer Accelerator here? We'd love to hire a bunch of people out of that program into seven-month field placements. Uh, when are you going to do it? And I said, Steve, it can't happen. We can't scale it. The schools won't grant credit for it. Uh, it's logistically impossible. And then I went back to my hotel room and uh, uh, and I thought about it. So, well, the ABA just changed the rules so that you could get pay and, and academic credit at the same time. And so, uh, and uh, I had a little bit more time on my hands. And so I called up Bill Moose and I said, Bill, uh, this is a conversation I just had with Harmon and, uh, and he's willing to back this. And so we, we did a needs analysis with a group of about 40 people. And over the course of the, the uh, from probably June until December of 2017, we talked about it and we planted our flag in December of 2018. We incorporated as a, as a, as a, non, a Delaware non-stock uh, corporation and created this organization. And, and I want to just give one shout out to Dan Rodriguez, who's the Dean of Northwestern Law School, 
who we had, we, we had had many conversations over the years, and, and Dan said, I think legal education needs to collaborate. And he hosted the first iFlip boot camp in May of 2018 at Northwestern. It was the first one out of Colorado. And this now, we're, now we have one in Osgoode Hall in Toronto. We've got one at Northwestern. We've got one at Boulder, and we're in the process of scaling. Okay, so let's help the listeners understand some of the elements of this, of this program. Sure. Let's go back to the idea. Uh, that um, Bill Moose observed that the legal education was not connecting to what was really needed, uh, what the lawyers really needed to know to be able to do the 21st century job. That's essentially yeah. what, what he was saying. So what were some of the skills what, and learning and know-how that the law school graduate didn't have? So some of the things were just basic business fundamentals uh, regarding how your business made money and, uh, and, and, and how... Uh, the business needed to think in terms of scale. It needed to think in terms of, uh, of revenue recognition, just fundamental things about the business that if the if lawyer didn't understand it, uh, they were going to be across purposes of the client. So business fundamentals and professional communication, finance, accounting, uh, just an eyedropper full of that stuff. Second thing would be uh, project management and process improvement. Everything uh, done on a sophisticated level multinationally is done through a process. Uh, third thing was leveraging technology. Bill had all sorts of teams in India. He had document automation. He had a bunch of, uh, of, of initiatives that were all put together, very much knitted together through a process. And so that was part of it. Data analytics, artificial intelligence was part of the initiative. And then last thing was kind of connecting with what I said at the beginning here, industry orientation, understanding the ecosystem that your client operates in here. So that was the uh, the original three week curriculum, and that's still uh, kind of our core offering. And we had a we've built out an advanced uh, boot camp that we use for the uh, upper level students that pertains to software as a subscription, software licenses, corporate transactions, and scalable contracting. So I'm sure any listener who has been who hires lawyers today to come into the 21st century setting uh, of law practice, what, what, wherever you are, especially in, commercial, in a commercial setting, listening to that list nods uh, her head, his head, and that, that that's exactly what law students need some grounding in yeah. to be successful lawyers. Yeah. So at the moment, where iFlip is, these skills are being taught as part of a program that happens periodically. The students show up at a place they go through what you call the end of the one L year. The end, end of the one L year and the end of the two L year. Yeah. All right. And so they show up. They show up at a place. Yeah. And you have several of those now, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, Boulder, uh, Northwestern, and Toronto. The students show up. The schools grant the academic credit, and so it's a kind of a consortium. Right. And when and those references are to the law schools located in those places. Yeah. The 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 schools host them, but we had 18 schools right. participate last year. Uh, if we're able to pull it off uh, for 2020, it will be uh, it will be 40 schools. So we're creating something that will eventually can be bolted back on to legal education. We're not we're not a rival of legal education. We're an intermediate organization that's trying to get ahead and eventually take what we built and gift it back to law schools. And and so part of the program is that the students engage in the learning, and then you facilitate them having an internship working at a law firm or a law department? Uh, law firm, law department, uh, new law, legal tech, and public interest. We have all of those employers in the program. And I want to say, 
Uh, you know who is our biggest employer is law firms, and this idea that law firms don't get it is is not true. Uh, the law firms have embraced this. Several, not all of them. There's a lot room for growth, but the law firms are, are definitely get this. Okay. So as the, as the program expands, what is your ultimate objective? What will this look like when you've got this at its at, at the full scale? that you're seeking to achieve? So uh, two things. One of them is is that uh, a portion of this program facilitates seven-month field placements. And so that was that ABA accreditation standard change. So uh, that we actually have 10 students. Now we had three last year. We have 10 this year. We'll have more in the future where their their fifth semester of uh, law school starting in, in, in May or June of the end of their 2L year until December of their 3L year is actually spent on site working a nine to five job in a sophisticated legal environment. You get eight academic credits for that. And with the, the boot camp credits you get or the academic credits you get from your law school, you graduate on time, but you're making $1,500, $1,800 a week. And uh, and so it's a it's, so a lot of uh, uh, practicing lawyers say, why can't the third year be an apprenticeship? Well. We're building it, and it's done through what the ABA has enabled. That's that's the the legal angle, but. The Institute for the Future Law of Practice ambitions are much, much bigger than that here. We think that the intellectual property that we're pulling together, the e-learning platform we're putting together, will be used to upskill the entire profession. And so we think we're going to be around here a long time to, to upskill a profession and develop perhaps a certification system that uh, that signals these, these what we call T-shaped skills and allowing people to get these skills very rapidly and uh, very effectively. I want to just point out uh, uh, the producer here, uh, uh, Larry, uh, told a little story before we went on about uh, about how his legal education e- enabled him to, to learn a technical manual in about five hours uh, that was mission critical. And actually, we do think at iFlip that lawyers are quick studies, and we don't, we're not trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater here. We think that the three years of legal education is critically important, but with a little bit of tech process technology and uh, business principles and design thinking, maybe about the equivalent of six credit hours, that's going to be, that, that will multiply the value of your legal education. And so, and plus the, the internships, you got to learn this stuff in context. So the internships plus a little bit of this uh, uh, training here, we think will be a game changer, not only for legal education, but the industry. So as I've come to understand iFlip, I, and as you say that you're going to upskill the entire uh, profession, it seems to me there are two parts to that. So one is the education that you're enhancing that students experience going through law school in the ways that you're, you're talking about it. And, and so, for example, uh, you, talk, you referenced the T-shaped skills. Those, those skills are the ones that you described earlier, learning about business, learning about technology, data. Top of the T. Right, that's the top of the T. The other way, and, and within that, you're going to create something that every law school can use effectively to bolt onto yeah. It's yeah. otherwise yeah. the curriculum and the faculty and everything yeah. that it has. This right? is the design problem here. Education, when it's done uh, at the highest level, would be highly engineered so that you, so it's uh, highly relevant, highly time efficient. The per unit delivery cost is very low. And it's fun and engaging, and so that you can learn the knowledge asynchronously, but the skills and the judgment is done in context. We use our valuable, scarce lifetime to do that. But we're going to engineer something that everybody's going to want to use. Like the iPhone works so well because it was so well-engineered. We think that this product will be so well-engineered, everybody will want to use it. All right. Now, I want to ask you about a second dimension of, of upskilling the profession. But before I do, it's past time for us to take a break to hear a message from our sponsor. 
Pay law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? Enter Headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls due to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. Okay, we're back. Now, Bill, there was a second dimension I wanted to ask you about in upskilling the profession. So beyond offering this uh, IP as you refer to it. E-learning platform, I think, may may be one way to think about it. Okay, so an e-learning platform. Beyond the academic setting, you plan to offer this to mid-career professionals as well. Tell us about that. One of the challenges that we have is is that when lawyers graduate and they get a job here, their time gets very, very expensive. And so there might be a better way of doing something. But if I've been ensconced in the practice of law, I'm immersed in it. And then somebody says, well, I've got a better way of doing it. And they start talking about uh, technology. They start talking about process. And I've never been trained on this one. Uh, I'm at a huge disadvantage. And I'm actually going to be a point of uh, resistance. I'm going to be an obstacle. And the idea that I'm going to take a week or two weeks to go learn about these things here so I can receive the information, I can understand the opportunity, is very, very unrealistic. And so, uh, and so um, what we really do need is an opportunity to have this well-engineered education where we can do some of it on-site, we can do some of it uh, online, uh, we can do some of it through open enrollment, but an educational experience where what you do on Monday and Tuesday, you can use on Wednesday. We think that that has a chance to get hold, and, and, and you want to do it on a, on a reasonable per-unit cost so that if I'm in an organization, I can send a few of my people to this program here, they can come back, uh, they can uh, give a review on it, and they can share some of the learning through the e-learning platform. So we're really trying to design this so that it's, it's, it can be propagated as fast as possible through the profession. We're, we're doing this as a service to the profession. We are a nonprofit organization that's trying to come up with an industry-wide solution. So this, this connects back up to where we started the podcast. Bill Henderson it, it devotes his energies to improving uh, the profession. And, and without a, a profit motive of his, for him or any other selfish motive, which is part of, I think, what, what will make this work. And I want to emphasize something that you just came to before we, we, we move on. Throughout this, part of your objective is to keep the cost that you incur and the cost to the participant as low as possible. Yes. Right? So well, that, that generates an operating margin that you can use to reinvest the uh, the profits. A nonprofit uh, doesn't pay taxes on its profit, but it doesn't exist unless it turns a profit. And so uh, and the per unit operating cost allows us to offer it at a price point that everybody's going to want it. It's high quality, but the, the profit can be used to plow it back into to new innovations. Right. That's what we wanted to use it for. That everybody will want it and they can afford it no yeah. matter who they are. Yes. And so the, the quality will go up per unit. The cost will go down. Okay, so that was great to hear about iFlip, and and, uh, I know all of us will be hearing more uh, as you proceed to build uh, the Institute. Okay, let's turn to a a really different subject, and that is a recent podcast that you did with Malcolm Gladwell, which must have been a lot of fun, and I'd like you to to, uh, share that with the audience. Uh, But this was part of a two-episode podcast. Uh, podcast that Malcolm Gladwell did, stimulated by some ri- a writing that you did. So tell us about how that came about and, and how it went. Great, Ralph. I had a blast doing the podcast with Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, earlier this year, I got an email from Malcolm Gladwell uh, introducing himself, saying he was a writer from New York, like I'd never heard of him, uh, saying he wanted to do something on some research I had done. 
and I was excited. Uh, it was an uh, article I wrote called The LSAT Law School Exams the Meritocracy, the Surprised and Under-Theorized Role of Test-Taking Speed. And if you're a fan of Malcolm Gladwell, he's always talking about going on an SSRN and finding these, uh, these interesting social science topics that he can basically write a popular book or a podcast out of. And he picked mine because he thought that he was smitten by the word surprised and under-theorized and also the LSAT. And so uh, he said, I'd like to do a podcast. And and uh, so I was going to be in New York and I went to his uh, uh, brownstone in, in the village and, and we spent two and a half hours talking about this exam and uh, or this uh, this article that I wrote. And the basic premise of the uh, of the article was uh, uh, the LSAT is uh, the primary testing device we use to give admission to law school. It's very high stakes, and it determines whether you go to Harvard or go to a less elite school. And um, I took this exam. I got into University of Chicago, and uh, but it was the most time pressured thing I ever did. And the and the second most time pressured thing I ever did was take law school exams. And I'm a mathematically oriented person. And I thought to myself uh, during my uh, clerkship after I graduated, I can remember in the shower one time thinking about this idea of uh, of oh, I wonder if the if the uh, if the time pressure explains the high correlation of LSAT with law school uh, grades. And I started uh, getting all these literature on this one. And uh, looked it up and found out that basically your reasonability with the LCT measures is completely uncorrelated with test taking speed here. And so I put together a proposal for the Law School Admissions Council. They funded it. And I, that turned into the first published article that I wrote when I got on the faculty of Indiana, published in the Texas Law Review article. So that was the article that, that Malcolm really enjoyed here. And he, people should listen to the podcast because Malcolm does a wonderful job of it using the metaphor of the hare and the turtle and the tortoise. And uh, his suggestion would be the tortoise tortoise is being undervalued here and that he's a tortoise. So uh, so he had a lot of fun with that. Right. It poses a really important question, which is whether, in this case, the LSAT, but there are other moments when this, uh, when decisions are made uh, that, are, that are critical to the future of, of individuals, is there a real correlation between, in this case, the LSAT and success as a lawyer? A lot of people believe that there is, but uh, as I told Malcolm, and this led to part two of that uh, of that episode that I was not in, I was referenced, but uh, it led to the work that I did eventually uh, uh, in uh, legal education and, and uh, with a company called Lawyer Metrics. We were doing a bunch of Moneyball studies that were looking at uh, uh, the relationship between success as a lawyer and where you went to law school and grades, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it turns out that there's really no relationship between academic pedigree, academic academic uh, success and success as a lawyer. I should take that back here. Grades actually matter, but grades don't matter in relation to where you went to law school. You could go to Harvard, you go to Hofstra. Uh, that's not particularly relevant to your success as a lawyer, but your grades matter. But that probably is a proxy for motivation. And uh, the director of analytics for Lawyer Metrics was interviewed in that uh, second episode for the Malcolm Gladwell podcast and Evan Parker, and he did a magnificent job just walking through study after study after study of the results we got. We got, we got the same consistent uh, results. So really, you become a great lawyer uh, through uh, deliberate practice and opportunity. And you have to have the motivation. You have to have this, uh, this, this drive to become great. And then you need the opportunity to practice your skills. Right. And, and I, I want to have with you a separate episode uh, of, of this podcast and talk in much more detail about what are the f- factors, what are the predictors that do correlate with <laughs> yeah. success as a lawyer, and we can and we can address some of the what appear to be myths 
about things that don't have much of a yeah. correlation, and you've, you've gone through a part of it now. Uh, but I think that would it'll be illuminating for everyone. Everyone in a, in, that employs lawyers, everyone in, in, that runs yeah. a law department, yeah. or that runs a law firm, or any other uh, organization that delivers legal service, yeah. what is it about a candidate that will predict whether or not the candidate really will be successful uh, in uh, as a lawyer, as a contributor to the organization and its objectives. And we'll get to that subject in another occasion. Well, Bill, it's really been a pleasure to have you on this episode of Law Technology Now. Is there anything you'd like to say before we conclude? It's always fun spending time with Ralph Baxter. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> well, that That is mutual, Bill. If the listeners to this episode have any questions for you, how can they contact you? I'm on the faculty of Indiana University Mauer School of Law, so contact me at my Indiana email address, uh, w-i-h-e-n-d-e-r at indiana.edu. And lastly, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you've heard, please rate us and review us on uh, in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. I'm Ralph Baxter, signing off for Law Technology Now. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.